a good weekend. Um, I don't think I have any, any announcements or anything, so we'll just dive right in. We were looking, we just had started at the end of our last time together to look at um, sort of some of the <clears throat> Christian response, like the response of the early church to these various challenges that, that they faced. And so we were, we were turning to the apologists. Uh, I believe we left off at Clement of Rome um, and, and just sort of, uh, that's where we stopped, I should say. And so another key or early apologist is Ignatius of Antioch. Um, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, you know, he, there are a number of different sort of letters, fragments of writings um, that, that we have. Um, and more so than the writing, it's, it's some of the, the concepts, if you will, some of the, the teachings are, are what really you know, make him an important key contributor. Uh, for example, of the, the early church structure, and this is sort of um, something else on our, on our outline, but as it was taking shape, um, you know, the exact sort of role and, and the way everything would be ordered was something that was essentially being worked out. And from Ignatius uh, of Antioch, we have, um, you know, in his writings, we see explanations of, you know, kind of having a, a single bishop that's in charge of uh, sort of the church for a given city. Normally, that's how it started out. Each, you know, there'd be a bishop for each city, which is effectively the diocese, um, who would then be assisted by um, deacons and and then later presbyters or priests in sort of administering uh, various aspects of the church. Um, I mention this because. Uh, in some early, the very early Christian communities, it seemed like having just one bishop in charge took a little bit of time to take hold. Um, and so Ignatius, you know, was, was seen as being a key sort of proponent of that. Um, and and that, that every church ought to be led by a single bishop. In one letter, he writes, take care to do all things in harmony with God, with the bishop presiding in the place of God, and with the presbyters in the place of the council of the apostles and with the deacons who are most dear to me entrusted with the business of jesus christ so the deacons were i mean i, I don't probably this group knows better than most um you know in the early church the deacons were really responsible for the vast majority of sort of what we might call like the administration of the church that they they had a lot of a large role to play there in things like distributing alms and, and other kind of uh, efforts at social outreach for sure, but but even just kind of maintaining the, the order and the, uh, like this, the, the entrusted with the business of Jesus Christ. Um, whereas the role of the presbyter is one that seemingly took a little bit longer to uh, round into shape, into form. I say that because the word presbyter itself, which you know, from there we get priest, as you you, you very well may know. It, it meets elder, and though you know, in some communities it seems likely that there were simply you know elders that you know had a kind of respected place, um, and and 
as the church grows in the first few centuries, you know, this meaning of, of the, the priest, um, the, the meaning of presbyter sort of corresponding more directly to priest as one who's ordained and, and celebrates the Eucharist and, and, um, and the like is, um, you know, it's something that, 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 that takes shape, but, but certainly from the beginning, you see the role of the bishop as the leader and then the deacons uh, very much as or key to the administration of the church. Um, Ignatius of Antioch also, uh, you know, had some important early writings confirming um, again, thinking about what we talked about before, some of the challenges or the criticisms, if you will, of, of Christianity. Um, you know, Ignatius uh, certainly reaffirmed and defended the, the notion of the deity of Christ. Um, you know, in one another separate letter, he writes, "There's one one who is possessed both of flesh and spirit, both made and not made, God existing in flesh." true life and death, both of Mary and of God. And, and he's speaking of, of Christ our Lord, he says. Um, what's interesting there is you'll, you'll notice he says it's most typically translated as both made and not made. Eventually the, the, the councils will sort of settle on a little bit different formulation, right? We say not begotten, not made. Um, because that's going to be key to the early life controversies, but um, you know, this Ignatius is writing you know, before all of that, and and so the exact formulations are still, you know, still being kind of figured out, if you will. But the important thing here is that, that he's affirming that Jesus is in fact God, is in fact divine, and along those lines, or, or related, I should say, he also. Um, very, very heavily uh, emphasized the value of the Eucharist, uh, which he called the immortality. Eucharist as the medicine of immortality. And he, um, you know, writes about martyrdom and, and the glory of martyrdom and, um, sort of how how being called upon to sort of follow in the example of Christ is uh, is a good thing and it is sort of in a sense the the ultimate calling for Christian he's also generally thought to be um, the first Christian writer to sort of think about replacing um, uh, to think about I should say um, observing in a, in a particular way um, Sunday, uh, the day of the resurrection, as, as sort of like the, the, the Christian version of the Sabbath, if you will. And lastly, um, he's also thought to be probably the first to use the Greek word katholikos, which means universal or complete or whole to describe the church. And that's obviously where we get Catholic from. Again, in a letter he writes, 
wherever the bishop appears, there let the people be, as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. What's interesting about um, that letter was written in, we think, the year 107, that uses this Greek word, Catholic, Catholicos. And what's interesting about it is, in the letter, he doesn't define it. He doesn't define the term. Um, he just, you, it, it comes, it's written as if it's a word that people are already familiar with. And many scholars, um, you know, tend to conclude that that appellation for the church, the Catholic church was already in circulation, you know, by the end of the first century. You know, if you're introducing a new word or you're using a word that, if you're using a word that exists, but you're kind of in a new or different context, you'd be inclined to define it, you know, to say exactly what you mean or, or why this word kind of applies. Um, but Ignatius uses it in a, um, I don't want to say casual, but in a, in a way that, that it seems as if it's it's something that he, he assumes people know what he means. Um, and so, um, you know, this is, again, a, a signal to, to many scholars that, that this term for the church, the Catholic church, um, took hold very early, possibly, you know, in the first century, before the end of the first century. In addition to... The early figures like Clement and Ignatius um, on your outline. I also note two important works um, whose authorship is, uh, you know, a, a little bit disputed or, or uncertain, but the, the works themselves were, were certainly very influential. The first being the Didache. Didache means teaching. And the idea was that it was sort of a the text itself was you know a teaching of the teaching of the twelve apostles, um, and you know it's again thought to be a very early text. Um, you know it just we we don't have a, a very definitive day, uh, sorry year. Um, it was thought you know it was considered to be. When, when there was sort of this conversation around the formation of scripture, it was certainly a text that was considered and, and, and reverenced in many ways and used liturgically by the early church. However, uh, it was it was sort of uh, unclear as to its exact origin and timing, and so it was obviously left out. But the work itself, the Didache, was, as I say, very influential. It speaks of, of two ways. Um, sorry. It speaks of two ways. It's sort of like the structure of the work is around two ways, the way of life and the way of death. Um, you know, unsurprisingly, following Christ's teachings leads to life, whereas following sort of the way of Satan or the way of darkness leads to death. Also importantly in the Didache, we see um, early descriptions of the, the baptismal formula, the sort of Christian baptismal formula, according to a kind of Trinitarian uh, formula. 
So that's the Didache. The, the Shepherd of Hermas, again, probably the middle of the second century, was also another early text that was very widely read and, and thought to be you know, quite valuable in the early church. It's, uh, it's, the text itself relays the visions of a former slave um, who, you know, envisioned to describe, um, you know, describes the, the way of uh, sort of following God, the way of following Christ even. Um, you know, that has sort of insight into the meaning of Jesus' teaching. The work uh, sort of winds up being, you know, laying out a number of different ethical precepts. And so it was kind of like an early um, ethical guide for, for the Christian church. So again, uh, uh, an early text that was, you know, pretty, we think pretty widely circulated and well known, ultimately not, not included in the canon of scripture, but nonetheless, um, important. Another key early figure was Justin Berger. Justin is a, um, was, was born around the, around the turn of the century, around the year 100. Um, born into a pagan sort of family, but, but came around uh, largely, it's, it's thought through sort of philosophical uh, study and philosophical reasons. Uh, became a Christian, we think, around the year 130. And eventually he moved to Rome where he wound being sort of a great teacher um, of, of the Christian faith. He was influential on a number of uh, a number of early church fathers that come after him, like Irenaeus and, and others. Uh, you know, his teachings were were, were uh, impactful and, and you know, important. He writes two um, apologies, of, you know, creatively titled the first apology and the second apology. Uh, sure really really served him well in that one um and they were both again attempts at defending and explaining the the uh, the rationale if you will for for christianity i mentioned when i was going uh sort of in the wrong direction last time uh, uh and, um, i can't remember who but somebody helpully corrected me that it was it's just who's ultimately who's also the um, author of the dialogue with trifo jew where you know he has this conversation with uh, a jew sort of the representative of judaism to respond to the, the kinds of um, you know, criticisms or points that were often made against um christians from from a jewish perspective so he's he's a very you know strong he's an articulate defender of Christianity, uh, um, and, and with and we also start to see sort of not not simply just you know defending against attack, but even formulating uh, the, the sort of the elements of uh, systematic theology. I mean, he doesn't get all the way there. Um, you know, it's not you know, it's not fully systematized, if you will. 
um, but we see sort of theological developments in in his his writing on on you know God being one, but also uh, you know pointing towards the direction of the, the Trinitarian formula. Justin is is certainly a key figure um, in kind of in the first steps at beginning to, to develop the sort of Trinitarian formulation. Lastly, on this section under the apologists, I, I list um, this guy Tatian. And he's an interesting figure. He's, he's sort of not, um, well, I, I don't think he's as, you know, nearly as well known, um, but he's also not particularly effective. Um, Tatian, you know, again, thought he was, was sort of serving the early church well, but wound up being, um, you know, sort of extreme in the way he presented things. Um, you know, he had this sort of theological effort to synthesize all of the Gospels, um, which, you know, was something that others after him tried to do as well. Um, but his tone and, and a lot of his criticisms were, were just very... Uh, you know, I don't know, harsh, were very, he, he was kind of an extreme character. He, he mocked the Greeks, you know, in a lot of his writings and, um, you know, just really, uh, you know, got a specific, a certain kind of approach, if you will, to defending Christianity and, and one that, you know, ultimately didn't, didn't um, persuade many people. And I think, you know, without dwelling on it too much or, or trying to signal a, a parallel to today or really at any age of the church, you know, there is a sort of risk in, in taking a kind of an extreme approach, one that sort of mocks and belittles your, the people that are, are, are not of the same belief as you, that uh, very often does not particularly effectively in trying to persuade them of, of what you're saying. And so Tatian was a, a kind of uh, an interesting side figure to, to this early age of uh, apologetics. So next I want to briefly look at the formation of the canon of scripture. And I think last time I, I may have mentioned that one of the the precipitating factors in developing, um, you know, a, 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 a well-defined canon of scripture was the, you know, the challenge posed by Gnosticism, figures like Marcion, who are kind of, you know, rejecting the Old Testament and, and rejecting certain parts of the Gospels or, or other things. And so there was... Um, a recognition, certainly by the middle of the second century, if not probably a little bit sooner, that just as the Jews had their their own sort of sacred texts, so also the Christians needed to uh, decide on, uh, you know, what what the, the sacred books of, of, of or scripture would be, and and we see uh, the the so-called moratorium fragment that was dated back was discovered sometime in the 20th century, but dated back to um, late second century, you know, gets at uh, sort of a listing of the New Testament that's, you know, awfully 
book where you know the New Testament we have, um, not not quite there, but but very close. And the criteria that were applied um, in terms of deciding, if you will, which which books to include um, were that the, the text needed to be of apostolic origin. Um, in other words, by, written by somebody, you know, either one of the apostles or or you know contemporaries. Um, and so, late, you know, later texts, you know, after the ap- so-called apostolic age, that that might have been, you know, worthwhile, um, were nevertheless sort of not old enough in that sense. Um, and just as important, or you know, another second criteria was that. Uh, the text in its in its entirety it needed to be faithful to tradition. This is where we get you know a lot of the sort of other gospels that exist, um, and, and you know some of them are the so-called Gnostic gospels, but but there are other texts you know that were were relaying a life of Jesus that maybe had you know a lot of the same stories in, but then they had some new stories it's like the you know. Uh, the director's cut uh, DVD version, and maybe, and, but the problem would be that sometimes those uh, those stories would would kind of not not align with um, you know the message of the overall message of Christ, and so uh, a number of gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, um, you know, telling a story of others who were around Jesus, um, you know were often read and, and copied and circulated and even, you know, probably used as, you know, uh, liturgical texts or, you know, read as part of the liturgy. But until this uh, sort of process, if you will, of, of forming the canon was complete, um, you know, and then after that, we settle on what, what we know as the, the New Testament. Um, again, it's, it's sort of a... An organic process by the year 200 or so you know it's basically you know we basically have the new testament as we would we would know it you know later church councils will you know uh what's the word i'm looking for or put their stamp on verify um that that canon that list of of books um and so it kind of was a, a somewhat more organic process. It wasn't like a general council was convened, um, you know, initially to just decide on this one issue or something. It was really the, the uh, you know, the work of you know, various leaders and bishops of Christian communities kind of um, identifying which texts were, you know, ought to be included that was then sort of ratified and, um, reaffirmed by councils later on. Um, last thing here before I, I pause for questions, on the, the growth and development of the church, you know, talking about Ignatius of Antioch at, at the beginning today, you know, I mentioned this, this matter of the bishops and, uh, you know, pretty early on, um, there's a, a coalescing around, you know, what's sometimes called, looking back, the, the concept of the monarchical bishop, which is to say one bishop, um, you know, sort of as the king, in effect, who leads the church. 
Um, it does seem very likely that that some early communities had you know had had multiple, maybe two um, sort of co co leaders. Um, but uh, before too long, it seems that that the vast majority had settled on um, you know this, this model where there would be one bishop and then a number of deacons involved in the administration of the church and this role of presbyter, as I said, coming into focus. Um, another another uh, sort of key function of sort of the structural development was that there needed to be some way to, you know, make sure that, that the various um, liturgical rites could be performed, and, and that's why especially as the church grew, you know, the need for, you know, for to celebrate the Eucharist grew, but also for a time, uh, this, the administration of the sacrament of baptism, you know, was, was quite important. And it was typically done, you know, where, wherever possible by, by, you know, going to, to the river, you know, a la Jesus in the Jordan. And, and so, um, you know, the symbolism around it and also like the use of sort of baptismal garments and putting on a new garment and, and, and this kind of thing created a situation where, um, you know, socially given the standards of the time and everything, it just was not, it, it would not have really been possible or appropriate or, or whatever to, uh, for, for women to be baptized in, in such a way that, that wouldn't have risked, um, you know, causing some kind of scandal or, or difficulty. Um, and so the this sort of role that, that became known as, or that we see sort of in, in historical texts as deaconess um, arose in the early church seems, you know, by and large to be, uh, to have functioned, you know, primarily as a means by which, um, you know, certain baptismal rites could be, performed, administered for, for women. Um, you know, I, I don't have to probably tell, again, this group uh, so much that even today, it's sort of this, I, I think, somewhat live question or, you know, it comes and goes that there's a commission to look at it. Um, you know, the historical commissions that have been set up in the past, and I think other historians who have looked at it, um, suggest that, you know, there doesn't seem to be evidence that this was, you know, considered um, an office, a, sort of a clerical order of the church by way of ordination. It not appeared that that's the case. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think. I, th I think the historical consensus is, has coalesced there. Um, nevertheless, there were these women deaconesses who played, you know, some role in the early church. Um, Oh, so in terms of sacraments and the liturgical life, you know, in the first couple centuries, the, the two main sacraments, you know, were, were, were very clear, baptism and the Eucharist. Um, I mentioned last time in the, in the case of the lapse, one of the problems was, you know, there wasn't really a sacramental confession, certainly not the way we, we know it today. And so the sacraments, this to 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 um, you know forgive one of serious sin was baptism, and so uh, it was it was an especially important um, 
and especially in Fort Sacrament, it was, uh, you know, again, largely it was for, for adults who were converting at the outset, but then when you start to get generational Christianity, if you will, um, you know, contra our Baptist friends, I, I don't think the historical evidence really exists uh, to support any conclusion other than, you know, once you start to see generational Christianity, you also start to see the practice of, of infant baptism. Um, and so, you know, that that is uh, also a key development. And then the Eucharist, um, you know, the the tradition um, is, you know, we kind of piece it together from, from various historical texts, um, but certainly, um, you know, the, so the words and actions of Jesus at the Last Supper, you know, immediately form kind of the focal point of these Eucharistic celebrations and the the, the sort of representation of that of that moment of that of that art structure seems to have. Um, seems to have been in place quite early as well, which is to say, um, sort of service of the word, or, you know, we would call it the liturgy of the word, where there would be, um, there would be, um, you know, readings from you know, the, the Old Testament and New Testament, the Gospels, um, then, and then uh, uh, from the sort of, that portion, and, and including a homily, a homily by the priest uh, from from early days, um, from that version to which was open to the you know broader community, including those who were not fully initiated. Then the liturgy of the Eucharist was sort of closed, secret, uh, only for for those who were who had been baptized to participate in. Okay, um, questions. Yeah, one question. So, therefore, if um, baptism was utilized as sacrament largely uh, for purposes of cleansing one of serious sin, then what would happen to one who was already baptized and found himself in a state of sin? Was there anything that could be done? Yes. I, I mean, and this is what we see with, uh, with the question of the last. You know, you could be assigned penances. Um, the, it's just that this sort of the specific sacramental form of auricular confession and, you know, the way, the way we you think of it today, you know, wasn't defined, like hadn't it, it come into the, uh, yeah, the, the form hadn't sort of been developed into a, a right, if you will, a sacramental right that, that would be, um, administered. And so. Yes, if you, I mean, you might have to do, especially, you know, the penances in the early church were often of a, a more public nature. Um, so, you know, you might have to you know, confess your, your, you know, your guilt in front of the community and, you know, do some kind of public penance or, or maybe not, maybe not necessarily public, but it, you would be given, you know, this idea, uh, uh, well, I should say this idea was very heavily influenced by um, you know, the, the sort of the Roman context and conceptions of justice and merit and, and then, you know, 
not in the context of uh, doing penance or you know performing good meritorious works such that you could put yourself in heaven, but you could make right, you know, so to speak, make right your uh, for for your your sins, certain certain punishment attached to your sins by doing good things. It was kind of like the scales of justice type mindset that you could balance out. Now, again, that's that's um, something that's going to be developed, and the theology around that will obviously be much more developed over time. But certainly in the early church, you know, sinners could be admonished and 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 asked to perform penance. But it wouldn't have been in the kind of structured sacramental context of confession the way we have it now. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Any um any other questions on the the apologists or the sort of the early development of the canon of scripture and, and the structure of the church? Doctor, I was wondering when we were uh, taking our introductory theology courses, and you had alluded to the fact that use of the readings or use of the writings in the in the liturgy was certainly something that was going on. But was that actually also a third criterion for inclusion in the canon? Not one of the criteria. Well, I think our language that we learned was widespread use. Uh, and the liturgy um, was one of the three criterion for the canon. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't disagree with that. In a sense, I mean, I think, in a way, um, you know, the first two often led to the third, if you will. So you know, you have this this process of like, uh, of you know, both missionary activity and then even just sort of the the travels of Christians across the ancient world where, you know, they may take a copy of the, um, you know, one of Paul's letters, let's say, to a community that had never seen it before, that had never heard it before. And, you know, and then, you know, I show up and say, hey, did you see this one that Paul, this letter that Paul wrote to the, you know, to the church at Corinth or something? And I say, well, no, we haven't. You know, they hear it, they would then sort of copy it themselves. And then the next time, maybe somebody from one of their communities went out someplace, you know, they would take it with them and to another community that perhaps hadn't heard it. And so a lot of the same, and those, those kinds of processes replicated. And again, the use of these texts was, you know, very often in, in liturgical context. It wasn't like, you know, once you get past like half a page for a reading on the missalette, like people's eyebrows start to go up a little bit. Um, you know, it, it wasn't like that. Um, maybe I'm just sort of admitting my own shortcomings. I don't know. Um, but uh, it wasn't like that. I mean, they, they could have several readings, you know, from from these from Paul's letters or, or you know from the Gospels. And so, um, yeah, the the copying and splitting letter and, and gospels, and then the use in a liturgical context, very often flowed from that. That sense that hey, this is you know this is a really important you know this is uh, this is a, this is Peter's you know uh, Peter's writings or something like that. Um, so yeah, I, thanks for mentioning that. I, I I would say that's that's fair enough to include as one of the criteria. 
Um, good. Any other questions or comments so far? Okay. So I just um, about an hour before class or so, so you, you know probably haven't seen it. I'll just give you a minute if you want to go into. Um, Populi. I, I posted the next outline for the patristic age. It's in the files section. And I actually decided to, to carry over that, that last set, section on our first outline on Constantine um, to the beginning of the second. I mean, it's, you could put it either way. It's just, in some ways, you know, I can make the case that he's sort of like this transitional figure from the early church to the next the next age because everything that happens around the councils and you know the the formation of uh you know the formation of the trinitarian formula and, and all of that the theological developments of the fourth century are really um only made possible in a sense by the space created the sort of cultural space created by by constantine's um rise and, and ultimate conversion. Just in case it's difficult to pull up or something, I'll, I'll also type in the, the chat box here any um, key name or something that's, that, that might, might be helpful. So if you recall last sort of last time we finished, uh, you know, there's sort of the political and then the the religious that we were kind of alternating between. And Constantine really sort of, his story falls more within, at least initially, within the political narrative of, um, you know, you had Diocletian um, at the beginning of the fourth century, the early 300s, um, who uh, uh, enacted a great wave of persecution against the church. Um, and, and then he, you know, he, he went away and, and there was certainly settling of the, the, um, anti-Christian, uh, persecutions, but the, the problems that we highlighted when we were talking about that certainly obviously still existed. Um, you know, these large borders and, um, you know, various invasions from, from the Germanic tribes, um, an overstretched sort of government uh, financing, you know, uh, that had difficulty financing its, you know, its operations. All of that was still, um, still in, in place after Diocletian. And, uh, you know, a key, a key development in sort of the political history of the late Roman Empire is the rise of, of Constantine. Um, now his father was a great political leader, but, um, Constantine's father, but, uh, you know, Constantine obviously sort of went on to, um, to surpass him. Uh, he really comes into sort of contention for, uh, leading the Roman empire in 311.
And the best way to sort of think about it, like in very broad strokes, is if you sort of split the Roman Empire in half, you have the Western, the Western half of the Roman Empire, which is like, you know, what we think of as more or less Europe, Western Europe. And then the Eastern half of the Roman Empire, which is like Asia Minor, Turkey, you know, stressing across to, to the Middle East. In both halves, the, the Western and the Eastern, you have two contestants, if you will, two, two men vying for control. So there's sort of like four, four players involved here. And um, Constantine wound up sort of making an alliance um, with a guy called Licinius. And Constantine and Licinius, um, you know, each each sort of um, you know had had this other figure that they were struggling uh, against to, to gain control. Um, and and for for Constantine in the West and, and Licinius in the East, um, it, it was you know it took it took uh, the better part of a year, if you will, for the, the struggle to play out. Um, or, or I should say a bit more than a year. Um, you know, Constantine famously, um, along with Licinius, I should say, in the year 312, uh, you know, engaged in this campaign to sort of consolidate control uh, for you know, leadership of, of the Roman Empire. And it led to... Um, you know, this famous battle in, in late 312, in late October of year 312, um, not, not that far from Rome, the, the so-called Battle of the Milvian Bridge, um, so late October of 312, Battle of the Milvian Bridge. <laughs> Again, a lot of, uh, you know, very sort of heavy, consequential um, imagery around is around this historical event that, that you know, can be difficult to, to parse out the exact, uh, you know, the exact proper, proper um, understanding or, or narrative around, you know, some, some tradition holds that, um, Constantine um, saw the Cairo, you know, the the sort of the letters of Christ's name in the sky. Others that, you know, he heard a voice. Um, he saw sort of the, the sun, you know, putting forth this cross and um, heard this message in this sign, you will conquer. Um, nevertheless, you know, regardless of sort of the pre-battle vision that uh, Constantine may or may not have had. Um, it was not uncommon at all for you know Roman general generals in the Roman Empire to um, you know sort of make some kind of offering to a god prior to battle, way of calling forth their favor, calling forth divine favor. And then, of course, if you you know if you were victorious, um, you know. Then you would, you know, again pay additional tribute to that god, and so Constantine's sort of um, response to the sense he had that 
that in fact the Christian God was to was for you know the one that was sort of beckoning to him potentially to to sort of follow. Um, you know, it's it's thought that he put again some Christian symbol on his, the shields of his his army, whether it's a cross or a Cairo or something. It's it's just very difficult to know. Um, nevertheless, in this battle, this, this very pivotal battle um, outside of Rome, he emerged victorious and as sort of the sole um, leader, political leader for the Western half of the Roman Empire. And his response to this was to really believe that the Christian God, that, you know, this this vision he'd had was responsible for his victory. And so he, um, you know, sought to pay, pay God honor and tribute during her anger's life um, and through a number of actions that we'll, we'll talk about. Um, similarly, well, not similarly in terms of the, the, uh, that moment of uh, uh, embracing Christianity, but in the East, Licinius has a similar victory in terms of consolidating control. And so the two of them together Constantine and Licinius in the year, the following year, 313, issued the so-called Edict of Milan. And this edict was one uh, that, that sort of gave Christianity not just freedom, uh, not just the freedom, it, it didn't give people just the freedom to practice Christianity, but gave uh, a sort of full legal equality with any other religion to Christianity. So let, let me just, you know, be careful to, to emphasize what's, you know, sometimes misunderstood by kind of combining two, two events that were not at the same time. Constantine did not make Christianity the religion of the Ro official religion of the Roman Empire. He did not make it the state religion. And Milan didn't do that either. That's later. Um, that's Theodosius in 380. But so it's, it's not that far, but it's more than the Edict of Milan was more than just a kind of edict of tolerating the practice. It recognized the equality of Christianity, if you will. The practice of Christianity with with all other religions, including the ancient um, pagan ones, and then it, it ordered the the restoration of property um, that that had been taken from the Christians as a result of the the Diocletian persecutions. So, you know, I mentioned that. Um, you know, besides sort of the the um, ECN and Diocletian versions, there were also sort of other persecutions where they were seemingly more interested in financial gain or taxing or could that be you know um, exchanged into some kind of uh, asset. So any church property that had been taken, including in some cases where they were able to. Um, sort of these financial penalties, it was ordered to be restored to to the Christians. 
so this was far and away the youth of Milan was far and away the, the most sort of pro-Christian um, document in in the history of you know, the early the early church it's the first time the state did more than merely tolerate it, it recognized um, you know the sort of full standing of Christianity the following year in, in 314 um, uh, the the sort of alliance between Constantine and Licinius um, becomes fractured and eventually the two wind up um, sort of coming into conflict with each other and um, Constantine first sort of defeated Licinius and, and took away a portion of his of his control of the East, and then eventually um, consolidated, in, you know, into sort of a final defeat several years later. But certainly after 314, it was clear that Constantine, you know, was the real sole ruler, even though Licinius had some control over territory. Um, by 323, it was it was all under the control of Constantine. And so, in that sense, um, you know, Constantine, sort of the last great emperor. The last great Roman emperor before the so-called fall of the Roman Empire. So Constantine. Um, oh, I'm sorry. There's Constantine undertook a number of different policies, edicts, issued a number of edicts to um, support and advance the place of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Um, this was really, I mean, goes without saying, this is the first time that Christianity would enjoy, that the church would enjoy the favor of the political leadership. And so, um, just to give you some examples, and you don't have to worry about getting all of these down, but just to give you some examples, a law in the year 319, um, you know, special privileges were given to clergy, um, and, and uh, the ability to establish legacies, if you will, um, among clergy that didn't maybe have immediate family that, that, that weren't married. Um, was that was enacted something like you know understanding like the church as a corporation in a kind of modern context so like a corporate recognition such that you know land and possessions could be could be passed down to uh to this sort of institution to this corporate entity rather than simply to family members and so you know the fact that you know let's say the bishop wouldn't wouldn't from a very early time would not have been uh would not have been married um, you know, that, that the diocese, the property of a diocese could, could be passed on to the successor, uh, you know, successor bishops and, and on and on. This is a key legal development. Um, also, uh, that same year, 319, work on Sunday was forbidden. And possibly, again, the exact year on this one is a little bit murkier. Um, but at some point, pagan sacrifices were also prohibited. 
which is really, really quite remarkable if you think about how quickly all of this is changing from, you know, Diocletian and, and that persecution at the beginning of the century, where the point of it was, you know, to offer sacrifice to, uh, you know, to a pagan god, you know, to the state, you know, by way of sort of deified emperor. Um, now, just 20, 15, 20 years later, it's being uh, prohibited across the board to offer for any uh, pagan sacrifices. You probably have some some sense of the great um, efforts made by, with the support of Constantine, to build a number of churches. Um, you know, with the support of Constantine and, and sort of the imperial government, um, new churches were built in Rome, in Jerusalem, Bethlehem. And then last but not least, um, you know, the transference of the capital of the Roman Empire to a new city um, where, you know, he would sort of relocate and, and, and kind of uh, establish this great new capital to, to pay uh, sort of homage and, and give the, the glory of the, the Roman Empire its, its recognition, but also as, as a Christian city. Um, when he transfers the capital to Constantinople, which is, uh, of course, in modern day, it's modern day Istanbul, right? So Constantine, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's worth noting also, I mean, there's several things I could note here. Um, you know, Constantine's mother, Helen or Helena, was also, you know, a key figure in his life and um, certainly seemed to encourage and support his 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 own support for the, the church and, and encourage bold and give uh, support to these new churches. She, you know, famously recovered true cross of Christ from the Holy Land. Um, and so this is the beginning of a real sort of um, blossoming in terms of the, the development of churches or sort of Christian infrastructure, if you will, as well as, um, you know, a lot more like the numerical growth of Christianity certainly expanded when um, and it was, you know, perfectly legitimate and, and even probably somewhat favorable socially and politically to be a Christian. Now, on the outline, I, I, I sort of had this, this point, conversion of Constantine, and then a, a question mark. And the point there is, the, the point of the question mark, in a sense, is, is to just call your attention to the fact that around the figure of Constantine, there exists a, a sort of I would say still ongoing in the sense that I can think of books that have talked about this within the past 20 years, uh, a sort of historical debate about how to interpret, you know, what Constantine did in his actions and things like that, and, and whether or not there was sort of a, a genuine conversion to Christianity or whether or not he wanted simply kind of religious unity and uniformity, and Christianity was the best option to achieve this somewhat more political goal. 
um, you know, to, to that end, uh, I mean, to this question, I'm not, I have to say, I'm not particularly like, I, it's, it's not the, sort of the role of the historian to evaluate the sincerity of someone's, you know, conversion or, or not. The, the challenges that there are sort of, uh, there's evidence that points in, in, in somewhat both directions here. Um, you know, obviously he undertook a number of um, sort of pro-Christian actions. We just, we just, um, uh, we were just, you know, just got done talking about them. Um, you know, some of the uh, other evidence, you know, evidence in the other direction as to, you know, cast doubt, if you will, on, on his conversion or, you know, the extent or the depth of his conversion would include, for example, some of the coins struck after were after the conversion <coughs> occurred um, still included pagan symbols. The, you know, the very famous Trump flirt, uh, the Arch of Constantine, also includes, um, you know, some some pagan symbols, um, and so, you, you know, you see this sort of, you can see some mixed messages in the, you know, the period of time after after the the Battle of the Milvian Bridge and before the end of his life, where Constantine, you know, is is sort of um, seemingly acknowledging or, or at least, you know, in an official capacity, allowing certain pagan symbolism to, to take hold. But he, he also does a tremendous amount um, to promote Christianity. Something that's, that's sometimes brought up that I think is not very, doesn't signify as much as sometimes people think it does is that uh, he was back, he himself was baptized um, very shortly before he died, essentially on his deathbed. But deathbed baptisms um, were not altogether uncommon in in the sort of early church um, for the reason that we've already sort of hinted at or, or said, which is that you know this was the baptism was the full the sacrament that fully initiated one into the Christian community, and as part of that complete initiation it, it washed away you know all of the sins of your uh, of your your prior life you became a new person in christ and so you know there were you know likely very many people who had sort of joined the christian church joined the christian community but held off on being baptized until later in life um and so Con the fact that constantine wasn't baptized until um he was near death. I don't think signifies much. The, you know, the other stuff with the pagan symbolism. Again, it's it's not, um, you know, it's it's not really the place of, of a historian to sort of evaluate one's sincerity. You know, could it have been, you know, he had this pivotal moment, if you will, with the, you know, this vision or sign and and that turned him toward um, Christianity, and then. You know, the rest of his life was sort of a process, potentially. Uh, sometimes, on on the the process of, of becoming sort of more completely devoted as as followers of Christ, you know, we we make some missteps. And so, again, I, I'm I'm really more interested in pointing it out to to you as a sort of historical discussion. I mean, there are I can think of at least a couple books um, that that just look at the, the various 
you know, pieces of evidence and historical arguments in both directions. Um, so what can't be denied, though, is, um, and something that we'll see here very shortly, is sort of one of the consequences of um, the figure of Constantine, his involvement and promotion of the church, is this... Um, is this uh, sort of term that that, that um, is, I think, you know, interesting to highlight, um, and we'll see several other examples of it of Caesaropapism, which is is really the idea that that the political leader would be kind of at the head of the church of the Christian church. Um, and again, the, the ways in which this, um, the ways in which this is sort of uh, illustrated throughout history can vary a little bit, and oftentimes, you know, the the, the political leader, the the Caesar, isn't like claiming that he himself is the pope or is the theological leader, but is rather sort of exerting pressure, if you will, or influence on the church to, you know, to. Um, obtain a certain outcome and Constantine as we'll see uh, or you know you probably know uh, you know was was a figure that was you know engaged was sort of interested in the Arian controversy and was interested in the Council of Nicaea and its outcome um, and so you know this idea of uh, political leaders of kings of you know czars of Caesars how, however you want to see it um, seeing their role as a, a political leader as also encompassing sort of leadership of the church is something that that kind of gets its first real trial run under under Constantine and then as a side note I'm not going to say you know much about Theodosius at this moment um, but as a side note, in 380, so uh, you know, several years later, half a century later, um, uh, do we see finally the establishment of Christianity as the sort of the official state religion of the Roman Empire, which is to say that, that you had to be Christian, basically. You know, otherwise, it would be illegal to be another religion. There were exceptions, again, for Jews, and, and there were a handful of, of exemptions, but, but by and large, um, the policy of Christianity being the official religion of citizens of the Roman Empire is um, takes hold under Theodos Emperor Theodosius III. So in less than a century, again, not to belabor it, but it's you know, if you think about these political developments from, you know, Diocletian to Theodosius, and you think about the Council of Nicaea and, you know, the Council of Constantinople's 381, uh, you know, the developments in the fourth century, both politically and religiously in the church are astonishingly consequential. Um, you know, to go from, from the persecutions of Diocletian to uh, it's now the official religion of the Roman Empire under Theodosius is a kind of transformation that, I mean, you'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to to really replicate, uh, you know, in, in another example similar to that. 
same time as turn to after our break at the same time you know you have all these really consequential sort of religious developments taking place or theological development so i'm going to pause there um any questions about about constantine successfully made it past the section on Constantine without referring to the, you know, is it Istanbul and Constantinople song? So I feel like that's an accomplishment. Um, you know, there are a couple directions I, I, I have taken that joke in the past. And it, it never ends well, so now I just talk about foregoing it as if that's, you know, doesn't sort of spoil the accomplishment of avoiding it entirely. But anyway, um, it's 8.07, so let's take 15 minutes and come back at like 8.22, 8.23, something like that. Thanks, everyone. Just about back. century uh, so-called Christological councils that, you know, the, the four, um, you know, obviously very important consequential general councils that that um, shaped the sort of the Christian church's self-understanding, particularly its understanding of, of Jesus was, what he did, how, how that ties into, you know, the entirety of faith and what, what the meaning of uh, the Trinity is. And, you know, I think I, I might, you know, the approach here is, is to just try and kind of tell the historical narrative uh, rather than, um, uh, you know, dive too deep into the theological weeds. Um, but before we get into those, uh, I think it's helpful to have two two major um, schools of thought, if you will, that that I think are important in shaping this theological discussion. The first uh, is really centered in the East, in the Eastern half of, of the Roman Empire, Eastern part of the church, which is, uh, you know, the so-called School of Alexandria. And sometimes it's called You'll also see it uh, known as the Catechetical School of Alexandria, um, and and it was, uh, you know, famous in that a number of key sort of church fathers are either influenced by or come directly out of um, Alexandria and do do a great deal to advance to advance on the understanding of Christianity. I think, uh, you know, probably a couple weeks ago, I mentioned the importance of Alexandria as uh, a center of sort of learning and just in general intellectual um, activity in the context of, of the ancient world. And, you know, obviously they have a, a great library, but also um, when we were talking about Judaism and, and sort of the interaction of uh, Judaism with with Greek thought, Greek philosophy, the translation, the translation of, of 
you know, the Old Testament into Greek and, and the like. So it's still the same uh, kind of hotbed of intellectual activity in the you know first several centuries after after Christ, and um, no doubt this engagement, this environment, um, is tremendously uh, important for for the development of Christianity itself. Um, and two figures I want to highlight here, again, although there are others that we could look at, but the two are Clement of Alexandria and Origen. Now Clement, um, you know, is is a key figure in, in sort of the, the late second and into the early third century um, in this sort of school of thought. Um, he was he was almost certainly, I mean, I, I think historians are pretty confident that he was a presbyter in the church, um, in the church of Alexandria, and it was sort of uh, you know, so he's kind of like a priest scholar, uh, if you will. Uh, he was just extremely well read. Um, he, he was, you know, highly educated um, and, and widely, widely read outside of Christianity. I mean, he he, he knew you know a great deal about the you know the early Christian texts and had studied them as, as well. Um, but but in addition, he was particularly uh, well versed in the, the various kind of philosophical schools that were influential of you know in that day, and so you know he plays a role um, similar to you know patterns that we've seen before, sort of interpreting um, interpreting religions into sort of more philosophical uh, kind of a series of, of dogmas almost, uh, and he does this for Christianity. Um, you know, he kind of creates a list of almost, I want to say scientific, and I don't mean that in the modern sense, but just like in a sort of in a philosophical uh, set of reasonings, um, you know, a number of, of points of, of belief. Um, he actually sees Christianity as very closely connected to uh, the, you know, the, ver the various philosophical schools that, that were so important. In fact, he says in, in one, of his, um, one of his writings, he says, our instructor is the holy God, Jesus, the word, who is the guide of all humanity, the source of all true philosophy. And he is the cause of all good things. And so you see this connection, um, you know, not just, not just sort of uh, in terms of um, speaking of God as as um, you know, creator in the Old Testament, incarnate, whatever, but as connected to, uh, you know, being the source of philosophy. Clement taught that faith, sort of simple, traditional, um, you know, faith, if you will, in in Jesus, was sufficient for salvation. However, sort of this uh, this can be deepened and enhanced by the pursuit of of knowledge, if you will. Um, and here he means a kind of philosophical knowledge. There's a way in which Clement is a, a kind of uh, a kind of quasi-Gnostic, and I, I, I mean that very carefully. I'm, I'm not suggesting he was a Gnostic in the way we were talking about sort of the heresy uh, last time, but that but that he had this confidence that, or this belief that you know you could attain a kind of higher knowledge of 
of God and, and, and what the ultimate meaning of Christianity was through the study and application of philosophy. Again, he didn't think that this was necessary for salvation. He thought simple faith was was sufficient. Um, but he did he did um, you know very much advocate for sort of philosophical approach and study of of you know of Christianity in general, especially you know understanding what Jesus meant and what he did. So, if Origen was sort of a key. Um, sort of earlier figure in this catechetical school of Alexandria. Um, you know, the, 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 or the thinker most sort of associated with the school that I think you can say had the, the largest influence over time and who was probably Clement's successor as a sort of leader of, of the, the, um, the school of thought in Alexandria was Origen. The relationship between Origen and Clement is one of these sort of, you know, somewhat murky things in history. A lot of times he's referred to, Origen is referred to as Clement's student or Clement's pupil. Um, but we, we just don't know that they ever existed as teacher and student. Um, it, you know, the, the timing could have worked, but but it's just not clear. And so, you know, I'm hesitant to say that, that um, origin was Clement's student. Either way, they're very much in the same kind of school of thought. And their way, I think it's fair to say that origin took some of, you know, the, the seeds of what Clement was planting and helped them to blossom into a, a you know, a really vibrant, colorful field of flowers. I don't know, I'm committed to the metaphor. I had to go where somewhere with it. Sorry. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. Um, that wasn't planned. In a, so anyway, Origen grew up um, in Alexandria. He was born there uh, in the 180s, early 180s. And, um, you know, he was, because he grew up in, in, and with two Christian parents, I should say. So also, he's not a convert. Uh, he's, he's born, his parents are Christian. He was seeped in uh, both the intellectual, you know, environment of Alexandria with all that that entailed, as well as, um, you know, the sort of the fullest intellectual expression of Christianity that, that probably existed, which was, was present in Alexandria. Um, I think it's fair to say, I mean, this is not my observation, but other historians who studied it carefully that, um, Origen was probably the most fully acquainted with the Bible uh, of, of any any other writer or sort of theologian in the early church. Um, you know, he, he was familiar with, you know, the Old Testament and New Testament in, in quite, uh, you know, substantial detail and had studied, um, you know, studied scripture a great deal as well as, uh, you know, the other sort of important philosophies. He was a very ascetic, lived a very ascetic uh, lifestyle, a very simple, um, you know, was, uh, you know, not prone to owning much, you know, by way of material goods or, or whatever, um, but was rather sort of lived a simple life and was kind of 
always teaching or studying or writing. Um, and then later also became quite well known as, as one of the great preachers of the early church. But it seemed as if he dedicated sort of all of his time to, you know, to pursuing um, the, the development, the understanding of, of uh, Christian truth. Uh, it's, it seems very likely that, that he died uh, as a consequence of torture that was sustained um, during his imprisonment as a result of the Decian uh, persecution, uh, the middle of the third century Decius. Uh, we said it was like the first systematic one. Um, and he was uh, you know, taken prisoner um, you know, in the middle of the third century. Probably died several years later, like maybe four or five years later. But again, it's thought that probably as a consequence from you know, either injuries or, or some kind of malady that had been inflicted during that period. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to do justice to a number of figures in this course in terms of their contribution to like sort of the intellectual history, if you will, of, or the sort of the theological development of the uh, of, of the church you know aquinas is one i mean i i, I can you know say so much about saint thomas or augustine you know i'm going to struggle to like keep my remarks limited to you know really key things um origin is another i mean we could we could spend just two or three classes on all the different things and the key takeaways i mean he, just to give you a sense of how prolific he was um you know, I'll, I'll hit some highlights, but again, it's just it's just top level of the, the kinds of work that he was engaged in. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, it's worth noting his his sort of biblical um, his biblical exegesis. Uh, you know, and and also translation work. Uh, one of his uh, works was. Uh, it presented the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew text along with four parallel Greek translations of the Old Testament. So you know how in Greek, you know, famously there's, well, half, you know, not half a dozen, but four words for love, and you know, depending on the context, there are a lot, you know, there are words that are very similar with slightly different meaning. The point is. There were a number of ways that you know these early figures sort of thought that that the uh, scriptures could be translated, and so you know Arjun wasn't just satisfied with one Greek translation, but rather you know gave it a, a sort of uh, very thorough um, series of possible translations, so that you had the Hebrew and four Greek translations um, presented all all together, uh, just as you know you know even more. Uh, impressively, the series of commentaries, of biblical commentaries that he authored um, was by far the most extensive as anyone at that time. Um, almost sort of the entire range of, of scripture was was covered. Um, there's very little that, that he didn't touch on or, or treat on his, his commentaries. Um, you know, it's it's been called you know his biblical commentary has been called the most val valuable work done by a Christian scholar, um, you know, in the first four centuries of the church. 
Now, Ambrose, uh, St. Ambrose is going to, uh, I'm sorry, Saint, not Ambrose, uh, St. Jerome is going to come along and do something similar um, um, in, the, in the next century. Um, but but uh, Origen, you know, was prolific when it came to uh, biblical commentary. But he wasn't just, uh, you know, involved in sort of translating and analyzing and commentating upon scripture. He was also a kind of theologian, you might call like a systematic theologian. Um, and he wrote around up to the year 230 or so, a book called De, a work called De Principis, on sort of on first principles, um, which really was, you know, one of the most sort of thorough let's say, systematic presentations of Christian theology up to that point in time. And it very much influenced the development of all subsequent Greek, uh, sorry, Greek-speaking, sort of all Eastern theological development, um, you know, in the centuries to come. I mentioned, um, I mentioned this briefly in the context of, of Celsus, but in, uh, let's say, around 246 or so, he wrote, uh, a response to Celsus called Against Celsus, um, where, you know, again, he, he was seen as one of the most capable apologists um, in terms of how he handled the criticism of Christianity. It was, um, you know, recognized as one of the most convincing defenses of the Christian faith that had ever been authored to that date. So he's a a scripture scholar, a biblical commentator, a theologian, an apologist, but also then wrote works on sort of practical Christian themes, like everyday Christian life. Um, he wrote books on prayer, uh, also on martyrdom. And then, as I mentioned, towards the latter half of his, or latter portion of his life, he was also uh, preaching. And so a number of his sermons were also, you know, preserved and came down to us. Um, so again, all of this to the point that that his output was not just prolific but influential. Um, his his scripture commentary, you know, does something very important, which is it it starts introducing. Um, you know, and, and will be picked up and built upon by, by later figures, uh, the, you know, not just like the plain text interpretation of, of scripture, but also, you know, uh, like the allegorical interpretation of scripture that can be, that can be um, devised in, in certain contexts for certain um, passages. And so his exegesis was, was, you know, more complex. It had multiple layers. Um, you know, it, it, it's not all that different than, you know, how we think about it today, that there are multiple ways in which your senses in which you can understand the scripture. And, and Origen was on to that, you know, quite early uh, well, well, church, church history. Um, as far as his the theological contribution goes, uh, you know, he's a fascinating figure because he was seen and recognized as so important, so influential. That, that he'll be widely cited and you know his Christology is especially um, important and in some ways controversial because uh, you know he's not 
by the standards of you know today or, or even by the standards of the outcome of these councils that we're about to look at origin is not perfectly consistent um and he can be quoted on sort of or cited on both sides of these debates and you know that that leads to you know as a side note that leads to uh, a handful of posthumous condemnations of certain aspects of his writings um including you know by a synod called by um, the emperor justinian in, in the four, uh, 443 and, and a general council in, in the sixth century um one thing i would say about that and, and this is a general point that speaks to you know the complexity of the issues that we're going to be talking about and you already know this but also within one individual's intellectual career you know it's not always easy to make sure everything you've ever said or written um, is perfectly consistent our, our, our beliefs and, and, and you know what we understand or how we think we understand certain things certainly evolves over time and, and if you're talking about decades worth of, uh, of sort of writing and thinking about uh, theology, especially some of the, the thorniest questions about who God is and three in one, and Christ as God and man, um, you know, it's not like you get like five years right before you're about to die to sort of iron out all the kinks in your, you know, your life's output, your, your intellectual output. And, and there, there are, and Origen is, is far from the only figure to whom this kind of observation applies, which is, you know, even within, you know, the you know, figure of the church finds something like inconsistencies or, or, or tensions, if not contradictions, in, in their view of matters. And, and I think that's, you know, just something we accept as, as part of the process. Um, and so Origen, for example, you know, proposes a number of fundamentals, sort of fundamental beliefs that are really the core of Christianity. And I'll just sort of give you the, the sampling. He, he says, these are the essential beliefs for all Christians, whether educated or uneducated. And he goes on to list them. Belief in one God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who, sorry, who himself gave the law and the prophets and the gospels, being also the God of the apostles and of the Old and New Testaments. In addition, all must believe that Jesus Christ himself was born of the Father before all creatures, became a man and was incarnate, although God, and while made a man, remained the God which he was, while made while he was man, remained God, was born of a virgin, was truly born, and did truly suffer, and did truly die, and truly rise from the dead. Um almost so in the resurrection and future rewards and punishments and free will the existence and opposition of the devil and his angels and that the scriptures were written by the spirit of god and there are, there are some others but those are you know kind of like some of the highlights and so you get you know all these very um you know critical sort of fun, foundational beliefs taught by origin and yet in other places um he speaks about Christ as, as creature. Um, and in one place, it appears that he's referring to Christ as a second God. 
but but clearly in some of his writings referred to Jesus as as having been created which is to say you know when we get to you know areas here you know that would seem to suggest that that Jesus is not you know co-eternal with the father um, and, and this was a key part of the controversy on the other hand you know in that list of things I, I just read you know it's sort of ambiguous at best what the relationship is um, you know, here he says that Jesus Christ himself was born of the Father before all creatures. Well, before all creatures, it's kind of it's not clear whether he's suggesting in that text that Jesus was created or not. And so the point simply is, um, you know, for all of his great contribution and, and, and influence in East and West, um, some of these ambiguities... Uh, led to him being, you know, utilized by by both sides of these upcoming debates in the fourth century. Um, and again, those debates were settled through the councils. The the portions of Origen's writings that were at odds with the, the judgment of the councils, you know, would come in for condemnation. Um, however, I, I, again, I think it's only sort of fair to recognize that he was writing before he had the benefit of, of these councils, but then also, you know, in a, in a really uh, you know, complex uh, way about, you know, sort of these topics and, and doing so a long period of time. Um, so again, a very influential figure out of the Alexandrians. Any questions about that, either Clement or Origen? So if that's kind of like the, one of the, the major, two of the major figures, let's say, in, in the East in the third century, leading up to the, you know, the setting the context or the scene for the, the councils of the fourth century, in the Western part of the empire, you have, you know, instead of what's typically called the, the Logos Christology, and I don't know actually don't think that, that I mentioned this specifically um, here in, in our class when I was just sort of briefly mentioning, you know, Jesus's, you know, role in all of this, uh, which I, I propose we don't take for granted. Um, but the, the Logos Christology was sort of a way of understanding Christ that uh, is, is best expressed sort of, you know, in the prologue to, to John's gospel, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word is with God, the word was God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So every time that word, you know, in Latin it's verbum, but in Greek it's logos. And so, you know, understanding who Jesus was, um, you know, and, and how to, you know, kind of flesh that out, if you will, um, the so-called proponents of the Logos Christology focused on you know, understanding um, Jesus in, in this way, and you know one of the great uh, the great proponents of this in the West uh, was Tertullian, whom we met last time, uh, talking about Montanism. 
so Tertullian, um, I think I, I mean, he converted to Rome, uh, to, uh, converted to uh, Christianity and then later kind of converted from Christianity to Montanism because it's found Christianity a little lukewarm. But when it comes to his sort of theological contributions around this debate, you know, it's, it's again, critical to acknowledge his contribution. And, and the first way we ought to acknowledge his contribution here is um, simply a linguistic one, which is that Tertullian was the first really prominent um, sort of church figure, you know, theologian in early church history to, um, to write primarily in Latin. Even some of the, you know, so much of the expression of sort of the early church, the early Christian church was in Greek, you know, influenced by sort of the the eastern half of the Roman Empire, Asia Minor, and and the like. But even even church leaders in in Rome itself, um, you know, through the third century, often wrote in Greek. Um, but Tertullian wrote in Latin. You know, and and this would be, uh, you know, very important moving forward. He he was also tremendously persuasive. Um, and his writing style was like very, very readable and, and convincing. I mean, he's unlike, uh, not to pick on him, but you know, like, and maybe again, I, I propose that maybe this is just simply my own, my own shortcomings. But if, if you read John Calvin, you know, one of the reformers, 16th century and his institutes of the Christian religion, like it, it's to me, to my mind, it's basically impenetrable. I mean, it's it's very difficult to understand what he's trying to say. Um, it's it's super dense. You know, it's it's just not written in a style that's that's particularly easy to understand. And, and again, maybe you know, maybe if you're, if you're a lot smarter than I am, it's it's not so so difficult. But Tertullian, and, and there are other figures like that whose style is just dense and difficult, and it's a slog to read them. Um, Tertullian was like that. He was he was just readable, kind of lively in his writing. Um, you know, sometimes compared to like a, a, a an attorney in court making a defense. Um, so his his writings gained sort of um, gained sort of traction because you know people could understand what he was saying and they found him convincing. Um, the, the circulation of his writings in Latin you know, subsequently earned him the title, which I think is deserved, as, as the father of Latin theology. I mentioned that, you know, the sort of court, like the lawyerly approach, and in many ways his style was to know try to define terms in, in very precise you know kind of uh, logical ways such that he gave tremendous amount of, of precision up to that point in time at least uh, were, were very difficult to understand and to have to have uh, you know precise terms to describe 
ironically, you know, a number of the things that he wrote would would sort of run into tension with his decision to sort of join the Montanists, and, you know, towards the end of his life. But for example, he wrote that, um, you know, authority exists in the church alone, um, that the church alone has the right to use the scriptures, and that valid churches are those that agree in faith with the faith of the apostles. And as a part of that, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, as part of that, um, this includes like the, the sort of the succession of the apostolic succession of bishops. You know, he thought this was a key feature as well, that, that, that the, the churches where there was a sort of traceable line of apostolic succession, you know, had maintained that communion with the faith of the apostles. He writes in another work, admission to the church is by baptism by which previous sins are removed. Those who even are eligible for salvation, having earned the favor of God. Beyond that, he had a tremendously keen sense of sin, by which I mean the weight, the severity of sin. Um, you know, it's often said, you, you know, when you think of the early church and, and, and sort of the Christian writer with, you know, a really clear and, and deep sense of, of sin, you, I think, think of Augustine. Um, but in many ways, Tertullian is kind of the bridge between Paul and Augustine uh, in terms of their, their thinking about, about sin. Um, you know, he it's 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 really like early stages, and I, I don't want to suggest that he had a fully fleshed out um, conception of like uh, like the doctrine of original sin, but he he he, he incorporated it into his theology and wrote about it in a way that you know was was substantial. Um, he had a he developed kind of theology of grace, um, you know, such that you know salvation is from. Is a, is a result, I should say, of the of God's grace. Um, you know, man, men and women have a role to play in a, in a sense in cooperating with with that. Um, however, it's ultimately God's free free work of grace. And then, f- sort of more directly to the the question that we're you know the questions that we're going to be looking at. When it came to understanding God and, and understanding Godhead and, and Christ, um, he writes in terms that um, I don't know. I mean, almost in exactly anticipate you know the outcome of, of these debates. I mean, sometimes I think like if everyone had just like read Tertullian, you know, uh, in the sort of years leading up to the Council of Nicaea that maybe we could have avoided a lot of headaches. Um, but, but for example, in, in one place he writes, uh, this is Tertullian, in, in reference to God, all are of one by unity of substance. What mystery of the dispensation is still guarded, which distributes the unity into a trinity, placing their order, the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say three, however, 
not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in appearance. For they are of one substance, one essence, and one power. Now, again, this is sort of like, um, you know, your, your head probably, well, if you're anything like me, like when you get into this stuff, your head starts to hurt a little bit. Although Father O'Reilly, I'm sure, explained it in such a way that was always clear and, and, and never confusing. I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not as talented as, as he was. Um, but Tertullian's explanation of the Trinity, and by the way, it's, it's worth noting, of course, too, that even the use of that, or the sort of the Latinized use of that word, Trinitas, is you know a contribution that he makes. Um, and and um, but his definition there uh, that they're that they're three, not in substance but in form, not in power but in appearance, for they're one substance, one essence, one power, is sort of like the the answer, right, to the to the question that's going to be um, argued about, um, you know, over the over the course of the fourth century. Um, similarly, you know, with with his let's say Christology, more properly speaking, um, he distinguishes both the human and divine natures in Christ. We see his, this is a quote, we see his double state, not intermixed, but conjoined in one person. Um, so again, we see so much of the, the sort of orthodox outcome contained in his writings a century, a century and a half before the councils sort of uh, get to it. Uh, I mentioned, you know, his, his use of the word trinity trinitas in latin but also we should add substan substantia for substance or sacramentum um you know other other terms that you know would form sort of foundational concepts he was responsible for really developing the the, the vocabulary if you will theological vocabulary um uh, you know that that would guide the western church Any questions about that part? Um, just briefly on Cyprian and um, Hippolytus or Hippolytus. Cyprian of Carthage is, is in many ways a kind of heir to, intellectual heir to Tertullian. You know, he um, you know, was sort of a, a, another one who, you know, had obtained a great sort of educational background, absolutely converted to Christianity, um, and was a, a tremendously influential uh, teacher of rhetoric. Um, eventually, after his conversion, he becomes uh, the bishop of, of Carthage in North Africa, and uh, was uh, tremendously effective as, as a sort of... Um, administrator and leader for the church in North Africa. Uh, you know, he didn't coin, you know, make a lot of original contributions. He sort of saw himself as, again, a, a student of Tertullian's work um, in, in the year uh, 258. He was martyred by beheading. Uh, Cyprian, I, I mean, today is, is very well regarded as uh, not just as a martyr, but for his role as a leader in the early church. 
then finally, um, Hippolytus or Hippolytus. Um, I've heard, I've heard it pronounced both ways, and for the life of me, I can't you know, really come up with a, you know which one it should be. Um, here was the, the figure sort of most influential in Rome itself, like in, this, in the city of Rome. Um, uh, lived in, in you know the, like from like 160, 170 or so to around uh, 230. Yeah, I didn't give you his dates. Still around 235, we think. So sort of the turn of that uh, end of the second, beginning of the third century, so about 235, was probably the most learned of the you know early. Uh, early Roman, and by that I mean in Rome, uh, theologians. Again, interestingly, in light of, you know, what you would think, um, he, he continued to write up through the year 235, he continued to write um, and, and, you know, express his theological beliefs in Greek rather than Latin, even though he lived in Rome. Um, and, and Tertullian, you know, again, just just by way of reminder, Tertullian lived. Um, they were contemporaries for a period, but Tertullian died. Um, that's a good question. I I, I think uh, around two twenty years old. So anyway, the point is simply, you know, Tertullian had developed, and and it's very likely, given you know the way the church had developed, that. Uh, Hippolytus would have been aware to some degree of, of Tertullian's writings, you know, as a contemporary. Um, nevertheless, he still wrote in Greek, but but um, very much was a proponent of, you know, this Logos Christology. Um, he was, I mean, there's more than just, you know, you know, this one aspect. He was also uh, a great apologist, you know, often arguing against those who challenged um who challenged Christian belief? Um, you know, he he um, was one who who uh, you know came into contact with uh, sort of what will come to be known, if you will, as Christological heresies, even though it's before the Council, so they haven't been condemned yet. Um, you know, I don't know, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here, but Sibelius, um, Sibelius and others who were sort of challenging Sibelius um, and, and others' view of, of Jesus as the Logos. And, and Sibelius thought that, you know, he, he was known with the view that, that we, I think probably more frequently called docetism, um, that again, that Jesus, you know, seemed to be a God, but uh, I'm sorry, seemed to be a man. There you go. But, um, you know, but it didn't make sense to you know, occupy this double state, if you will. Um, so Hippolytus was, was sort of engaged in a lot of these, these discussions and arguments, if you will, over, um, the nature of Christ prior to, you know, the fourth century councils. And, and so in looking back, um, in looking back, 
from like the fourth and fifth centuries at the, the influences on you know these outcomes you know he, he and, and uh, Cyprian and Tertullian certainly you know have have some rightful role to to play there okay um, so just just that off a little the, the the challenge, the problem that leads to the Council of Nicaea. Um, the the situation really gets its its start, sort of sparks in Alexandria, which you know I've been saying several times now, sort of this top at a intellectual activity, um, and. Uh, it's it's there in in, in this uh, this really rich intellectual environment that we have a controversy emerge in in probably around the year uh, 320 or so when a dispute breaks out between the bishop of Alexandria whose name is Alexander so Bishop Alexander of Alexandria not not confusing um, and um, another another priest, uh, and honestly a fairly well-respected priest um, in the city called Arius. At this time, Arius was fairly advanced in years, but was also you know, well-regarded as uh, being a great, uh, a great preacher, a very well-learned learned man, and, and very pious man. Um, Arius saw himself as following in the teaching of origin and I, I mean I said a couple minutes ago that the challenge in, in that is you know people on both sides of this argument see themselves as as being in the in the line of origin in Arius's case he focused or, or, or sort of subscribed to the, the portions of origin's writings that refer to Christ as a created being and so um, Arius held that he was not that Christ was not of the of the same substance of God, but was a creature, was like other uh, was like other creatures, was created. Not not that he was simply you know just like you know you and me. He was the the first. It's the first born of creatures, the very first one. Um, but there was, in fact, a time when he did not exist, when he was not. So he was not eternal. So God the Father, from for Arius's, from Arius's view, God the Father is eternal, was eternal. Jesus, not, not, not so. He writes, the Son, uh, S-O-N, right? The Son has a beginning. But God is without beginning. Interestingly, uh, um, Arius is, is his uh, own Christology is a little bit um, murky. I keep using that word tonight for some reason. But um, in that he doesn't really settle on Christ as being fully, either fully God or fully man, but rather a third option like option c that's that's hard to define 
Um, but it was really the sort of the first part of that, you know, the first part of this uh, set of beliefs that that raised the the trouble that that um, that that Christ was not eternal, that he was in fact a creature, um, and so. Alexander, the bishop, um, you know, was influenced also by Origen, but in the other direction, um, on sort of on the other side, and, and he believed that that Christ was in fact eternal or co-eternal, as it were, um, and of the same essence as God the Father, and uh, importantly, uh, that he was uncreated. So you have. Uh, you have Arius and the Bishop of Alexandria around 320 or 321 the, uh, the Bishop Alexander calls for a synod in Alexandria sort of a gathering of the local church and Arius and a number of his kind of sympathizers were condemned their, their beliefs were condemned and Interestingly, after that, Arius, um, you know, he, he was very convinced of his his views, and and again had a reputation for piety and holiness and 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 learning. And so, you know, I, I guess my point is that we shouldn't impute sort of bad motives or something necessarily to him. I mean, I think he really believed, you know, that he was correct about his understanding. Um, and so after after he was condemned by the synod, he appealed to uh, another bishop for help, somebody that he had, you know, he was confident, sort of agreed with him. And this was um, Bishop Bishop Eusebius of, hang on a second, of Nicomedia, which is also... Um, you know, not, not too far away in Asia Minor. And so what happens is Arius appeals to this other bishop, Eusebius, and Eusebius agrees with Arius and says, you know, Arius, you're, you're right about this. Um, the synod in Alexandria that condemned you is, is sort of mis mistaken, misguided. So then you get um, a, a situation where Alexander, you know, back to Alexandria, writes to other bishops sort of to defend his position, and Eusebius takes up the mantle of sort of defending Arius' position. So what's important about this, and, and I think, and again, this, this may all be review, um, What's important, you know, from a historical perspective, especially, is this is really the, you know, the first time. I mean, let's just set aside the Council of Jerusalem, if you will. But this is the first time we now have um, both sides of the theological issue, a kind of contested theological issue, with bishops who are, you know, defending the, the two positions. And so it wasn't a question of like, you know, the bishop says this and one of the presbyters or, or something, a theologian in the diocese says something else. 
you have now two bishops, um, or more than two, but you have bishops on both sides of an issue. And so the question is, how, how does this kind of dispute get settled? How does it get worked out? Um, because both sides of this position have, have bishops. Uh, Constantine, to, to shift back uh, somewhat abruptly to the, the political situation, Constantine was, uh, you know, a strong, a strong leader, a strong promoter of Christianity, of the church, but also in many ways a, a very practical leader. And he, I mean, he understood, um, you know, the, the old maxim that I think had its origin in, in Roman history about divide and conquer. And, and he understood that uh, unity is key to the success of of a nation, of an empire. And so uh, when this dispute breaks out uh, and, and word essentially gets gets to Constantine, he's very concerned that that there is a risk of sort of fracture developing within his empire on a theological question. You know, in other words, it wasn't just it wasn't just political unity that mattered. It was it was like unity across the board. See, even that. I hope this isn't too much of a digression, but even that thinking, the way I just expressed it, sort of, you know, shorthandedly, is kind of reflects a kind of modern mindset that that there's a distinction between the political and the theological. Um, there really wasn't in the ancient world. I mean, to be you know, as we saw going back to the era of the persecutions, to be a Roman meant to, you know, worship the, the Roman gods, pagan gods. Well, now, under Constantine, you know, to be a Roman, you know, a citizen of the Roman Empire meant to essentially to be a Christian, even if it wasn't legally required yet. And so the unity, the religious unity of the, the, the people of the Roman Empire was really important to Constantine. And he did not like this emerging disagreement. And so um, he sends his, you know, one of his key sort of theological advisors, um, Hosius of, uh, Bishop Hosius of Cordoba in Spain, to um, kind of investigate, if you will, the, the situation. And you know, the, the first approach is to sort of try and encourage both sides I said, just drop it. Like, you know, you know, guys, it would be better. Let's let's just like focus on the things we agree on, not get too too, uh, too worried about what, what Hosius called a quote unprofitable question. Um, but this is not, uh, you know, this this worked about as well in the fourth century as it would work today, you know, on Twitter, if you told both sides of a disagreement to, you know, just drop it, it's an unprofitable question. Of course, of course, nobody's going to drop it. I mean, these people felt strongly and passionately about what they were, what they were advocating. So, you know, this first sort of attempt to resolve the situation, um, Constantine knows that, um, he needs to employ a tactic that he had actually used when he was sort of in charge of only a smaller part of the Roman Empire. This is before he had consolidated the entirety of, of the empire under himself. 
Um, prior to that, when he was sort of like in charge of a region, he had held, again, a synod, um, you know, kind of regional synod where everybody in the region, all the bishops in the region were called together. Well, now Constantine, again, is the sort of sole ruler of the entire Roman Empire. And so to the extent that he saw himself, again, speaking to this notion of Caesaropapism, the extent that he saw himself as as the leader in a certain way of the of the church, he in, he summoned all of the bishops of the Roman Empire because he was sort of the master of the entire empire. He summons all of the bishops of the empire to come together to um, to uh, discuss adjudicate this issue, and that's how we get the Council of Nicaea, the first general council of the church in 325. You know, it was, it was, um, you know, it, it's obviously maintained a critical importance of the church and sort of the, the development of, of doctrine. Um, it met in May of 325, Council of Nicaea. Just to give you a sense, again, of the role of Constantine, the role of the state. Um, the, the bishops were summoned to Nicaea, which isn't that far away from Constantinople. Um, they were summoned to Nicaea at the government's expense, you know, at the public expense, taxpayer money, if you will, um, paid for it. Now, it's unclear to me, um, you know, maybe like it was like the Holiday Inn Expresses that they stayed at. I'm not sure if Continental Breakfast was included. Um, but the point is it was on the government dime that the bishops were invited, uh, which I mean, another way to think about it. And, and again, just speaks to the entirely different way in which church and state related, um, then, I mean, imagine, you know, like, okay. So the United States bishops meet, uh, well now they're meeting virtually or whatever. They would normally meet twice a year. For their their USCCB meeting, it'd be like you know if if it was like you know president like for the air for all the bishops to come to you know Washington or something to have their meeting and 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 it was taxpayer funded. I mean it's just like uh, again a totally different role for the government to be playing. Uh, the bishops that were present in Nicaea were heavily, heavily skewed, if you will, geographically to the east. So, I mean, I should have emphasized heavily even more because we think there were about 300 bishops at the Council of Nicaea. Probably six were from the western half of the Roman Empire. Part of that is geographically, it was... I mean, the council place is close, you know, in, in sort of the eastern part. There were a lot of geographic impediments um, to travel from, let's say, Gaul, modern-day France. Um, but also there were just a lot more Christian communities and a lot more bishops concentrated in the east. Um, so it's interesting because, you know, this was a heavily sort of uh, eastern-dominated gathering. Um, you know, you kind of have three groups at the Council of Nicaea, three parties, if you will, three factions. You have a the, the sort of Arian faction, 
led by Eusebius of Nicomedia, it seems pretty likely that there was that was a, a relatively small group, like not particularly um, large in terms of numbers. On the other side, there was again also a probably fairly small group that were supporters of Alexander and and sort of opponents of Arius. And then the vast majority were kind of in the middle, but of that big group that was not like firmly committed to one or the other side, uh, one one observer uh, described most of that middle group as quote simpletons, and and the idea was that to the extent that uh, that they you know had thought about this question, they didn't really have a, a deeply formed. Um, a deeply formed opinion beyond affirming the teachings of origin. But as I've said, both the Alexand supporters of Alexander and the Arians were claiming origin as their own. And so the, the, the majority of folks, the majority of bishops probably didn't have a very firm position going into the council, um, but they would ultimately be, you know, the ones who would kind of vote in, in, in large numbers and for the final outcome. Uh, Constantine himself was you know, at various times in the assembly of the Council of Nicaea, which is in a way very surprising uh, because he wasn't baptized. You had a, a, a participant, I mean, he wasn't a voting member, right? But he participated as an observer in the council, um, though not technically a full member of the church. So, again, the two sides that were, you know, very firmly committed, if you will, to their respective views, sort of argued it out. And the Arian formula, uh, sort of the Arian view that was sum, uh, summarized by this this uh, phrase, there was when he was not, or there was a time when he was not, in reference to Jesus, ultimately was, um, was sort of rejected by, by the majority of people, even if, even if they hadn't thought deeply about it coming in, um, you know, the council did not, did not, um, the majority of the council did not go along with with that formulation. It seems likely, and again, um, this was the the emperor's sort of chief at the time, at least chief ecclesiastical advisor. It seems likely that Hosius, again uh, of Cordova in Spain, was was very influential in advocating for the um, the sort of the view represented by Alexander, more or less, um, and against Arius. The, I think you know, the key sort of um, word or the debate over the key word had to do with uh, what is sort of what is what is Jesus made of? What what's the stuff he's made of in relation to um, God the Father? Is he of the same substance? Um, in this case, the word uh, would be homo usios, usios meaning substance, homo meaning same, or uh, a similar substance. 
in this case, Homoi Ujiyan. Homoi being the Greek prefix. Somebody's not on mute. The Greek prefix um, for similar or like. So homo usios is on your outline versus homo usios. Of course, this is where you get the you know expression of one iota, one iota's difference. That Greek letter iota is is the only difference between two. And yet it captured a, a tremendous gulf uh, between the two beliefs about about Christ and his relationship to the Father. In the end, um, in the end. The, the council, as we know, just decides in um, in favor of homoousios of the same substance. The Latin equivalent is consubstantia or consubstantial of the same substance. Um, and it's that that Constantine um, was probably influential through Hosius and, and just his presence and his desire for um, unity drove you know a, a sort of united expression of, of faith as an outcome and so um, in the end all but um, two of the bishops present at the time signed on to the, the sort of Nicene definition um, Arius and those other two bishops who didn't sign on were banished by Constantine uh, and the church had a temporary period of unity, as we'll see. Uh, Arius and the Arians, frankly, were not done fighting this this battle, and they will revisit the subject, including revisiting it with Constantine, pretty shortly after the council ends. And so you have a definition um, in 325 uh, that's not the full what we call the Nicene Creed, as I think you know. It's really the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. So it's a portion of that. Um, but it's not going to hold up, you know, for very long politically after the council. The other thing I want to mention, though, about the Council of Nicaea, besides sort of deciding against Arius and in favor of Homoousios, is um, most councils next to them, a doctrinal track, you know, some matter of doctrine that they address. And then a disciplinary track, uh, track some some matter of church discipline, and so um, there were some, you know, fairly minor disciplinary canons um, around, for example, making uniform the date of, for the observation of Easter, as well as resolving a few um, a few regional schisms that had arisen, um, uh, you know, in, in the decades prior to the council. So again, I, I, that, I mean, the, the key thing about the Council of Nicaea was, you know, the debate over uh, homoousios or homoousios and the condemnation of Arianism. But I, I introduced that just because most councils will have a both doctrinal and a disciplinary aspect to their proceeding. Okay, I'm going to pause there. At, we're at 9.30. Are there any questions? Well, um, thanks very much, everyone. I, I hope uh, I hope that was clear enough so far, and uh, you know we'll keep working our way through these Christological councils. Uh,
Um, and I will see everyone next week. Wait, Doctor? Yes. Did you say anything about the midterm yet? No. No. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh it's scheduled is it it's scheduled for next next week, I guess, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so too. Because we lost the one class, um my inclination is to I'm I'm gonna have uh, yeah, thanks for, for calling that. I was gonna um probably send an email midweek, but it's just as well now. Um not not next week, but the following week, the fifteenth. Um, I'm looking to have a kind of, I don't even really want to call it a sort of take home midterm. It's going to be more like a a sort of a a short essay assignment, um, based on the ground we've covered to date. Um, I'll give sort of a, probably I can give a little bit more than a week, even maybe 10 days to do it. I think I need another assessment. I mean, I, I'd be just as happy, frankly, to cancel the midterm, but they tell me I have to have a certain number of assessments. Um, so I think it's going to be something like a take home midterm, but just a little bit shorter, probably two essays, something like that. I'll I'll give you some guidance around it, um, you know, next week, but it wouldn't be until two weeks from now. You know, I'll give you about 10 days to do it. I just think, uh, you know, given, given where we are, I mean, obviously the first part moves slowly and then we lost the class and everything. I'd rather just keep, keep uh, moving forward and have the assignment take place all time. Unless the class feels very strongly that you want a two and a half midterm, in which case I'm ha- happy to oblige. Rachel, what was Rachel shaking her head? Yes, I missed that. Oh, she said the former. Probably sit down until the urge passes. No, it's a blessing because I have another really intense midterm coming up, so I'm fine facing them out, you know. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Glad to hear that. Glad to hear. All right, everyone. Well, th- thanks, Rachel, for, for mentioning that. Um, and uh, yeah, so we'll worry about the Dukes, and I'll see you on on, on next Monday. Fantastic. Thanks Thank very much. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Then, um, can I ask one real quick question before we depart? Please, Rob. Pure and simply a curiosity question. Uh, I've read some about Helena, about uh, uh, Constantine's mother, and you know her conversion to Christianity and so forth. Um, with her journeys, what she came up apparently with what was purportedly some of the wood from the cross. That's right. Whatever happened to it? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um... I think for a while the tra- tradition held that it was in Constantinople, um, but I'm uh, I don't know. You know, there are a number of it's that it's probably a book on this. I'm trying to think the best place to find it might be. There are a number of relics, as I'm sure you know, of the, the relics of the True Cross. Um, you know, they're but they're small pieces, and so some of them, you know, trace their origin back to to um, Helena mm-hmm. and and yet the sort of large like the sense that there's like you know this really big um, segment or something it, it's, it's not it, it doesn't seem to have endured um, you know whether it was sort of divided up or, or the ultimate fate 
Um, I think, you know, initially it was transferred to Constantinople. Um, but from there, I don't really have a clear sense of, um, you know, what, what may have happened. And if I'm not mistaken, it was also Helena who was responsible for the, um, bringing the Holy Steps back, right? Which are in Rome still to this day. Um, and I don't know why those weren't transferred to Constantinople because so many of the most sort of precious things that were in Rome that weren't, that weren't Roman. So like the idea when Constantine, uh, when Constantine was sort of packing up was that, you know, they were going to take the sort of the most important treasures with them unless they were relate to the city of Rome itself, you know, Peter, Peter and chains and, and all of that, you know, like the relics of Peter and Paul need to stay in Rome. Um, that was, that was sort of a given, but other things were mostly sort of transferred to Constantinople. And I think that included the, the true cross, like, like the relic of the cross or, or the cross itself, I should say. Why the stairs didn't go, I'm not really sure. So it's a good question. I, I don't have a, a really clear sense to be honest with you beyond uh, you know, what, what may have happened in those early sort of centuries. Yeah, years and years, uh, on the, uh, I was down below, underneath the Vatican, and uh, Peter's, St. Peter's bones were in a plastic box from the container store. They didn't have that, they hadn't built the altar or anything yet. Wow. In a plastic box, you got, you were able to see them. <laughs> what, do you have a sense of what year that might have been? Oh my gosh, it's got to be 20 some years ago. <laughs> because the last, I, I, the, uh, a couple of years ago, I went to see it again, and it got a beautiful, ornate altar. Oh yeah. And everything else now. But uh, the first time I went, it was in a plastic box in the container store. I even remember it still had a blue lid. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, I've seen the only piece of the cross that I've seen in the uh, cathedral in Palma on the Isle of Mallorca, Spain, they have a, uh, in the cathedral purportedly, what is a piece of wood from the cross? Mm. And I've seen that, but you know, how authentic it is, I don't know. It's, that's one of the hardest relics. I mean, there are a number of places that claim, you know, pieces of it. You know, we won't say much about it in this course, but like, or in this class, just cause there's not, not enough time. But, you know, in the, in the sort of the heyday of the middle ages, you know, relic proliferation was just a real problem in many ways with a number of places claiming to have the exact same relic. Um, and, and, and so it's sort of sometimes difficult to track the lineage of some of these, you know, really precious ones, um, just because it's, it's just, it's very hard to know going, you know, going back 17 centuries or whatever, 16, 16 and a half centuries. So, and that, and that one obviously is among the most coveted. Yeah, 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 you know the uh, one one question uh, somebody asked me the other day was why do I kiss the why do I kiss the altar when I go up for mass? Mm. I told them because because of the relics, mm -hmm. you know, and they didn't they were not aware of the fact that there were there were relics in the altars. Yeah, that's right. People, I think a lot of people don't realize that they, they don't realize it's it's impermissible. It's a violation of well now canon law but it goes back to even before we really had the code kind of codified the way we have it now it's a violation of the church's law to 
to um, consecrate or you know to, to build an altar that doesn't have a relic. Yeah, we. Uh, at, I'm, I'm at St. Christopher's and St. Patrick's. That's where I'm the deacon there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got relics, but nobody knows who they are. Wow. But uh, St. Patrick's is 175 years old. So it's the. Uh, I told them if they ever deconsecrate it and they go in and remove it, it'll probably be underneath. It'll show where who it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm surprised they don't have a, a record of it of it somewhere. You know, the churches are too old. Really? Sometimes that works in their favor because sometimes a really old church, like I guess it it always also depends on like local factors. You know, if there was a fire at one point in time or a flood or something, um, because sometimes those 19th century, um, you know, early 18th century churches have meticulous records of everything. Um, and, and so sometimes you get lucky, but but yeah, records get lost. I mean, that's the story of everything. When uh, I worked with Mother Teresa for 11 years, hmm. I started when I was in school, 